Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones soared 263 points today, although at one point the index was up better than 350 points, but it managed to finish the week with a 4.7% gain. That is the best showing for the Dow Jones Industrials in six months. In fact, we snapped a six-week losing streak this week. All of the major averages had positive weeks. The Nasdaq, the best gainer on the day, up 1.7%, not quite as strong on the week because it took a shellacking on Monday uh, with the FANG stocks leading the way down, uh, but up about 3.7% on the week. Similar gains for the uh, Russell 2000, Dow Transports, the S&P 500, not quite as strong as the Dow, I think up about 4.2% on the week. But why? What was the catalyst for this big move up in the U.S. stock market. Was it better than expected earnings? I mean, not really. I mean, some companies beat estimates. I mean, take a look at some of these recent IPOs like um, Zoom Video. I mean, Zoom Video was up 18% today because it earned three cents a share instead of the one cent that Wall Street was expecting. Now, three cents per share is not a lot of earnings when you're a $94 stock. But that's where the stock is. Of course, even more ridiculous is beyond meat, which is beyond sanity as it's going uh, to infinity and beyond. Now, beyond meat was up almost 40% today, 138.65. The high was 149.46. This stock has already more than tripled uh, its IPO price or quadruple. I can't really tell. Now, they're still not making money over there at beyond meat. Uh, So they still haven't moved beyond losses. Uh, The company lost $6.6 million on the quarter. That's 95 cents a share. But that is an improvement because a year ago, in the same period, they lost 98 cents a share, right? But now if you adjust it, if you back out a lot of other stuff like uh, stock-based compensation and things that nobody likes to count, then they only lost 14 cents a share, which was better than the 15 cent a share loss that Wall Street was expecting. So clearly that's worth an extra 40% on the price of the stock. I mean, I forget what this thing is trading, 100 plus times revenue. It is a crazy multiple, but at least this stock has a viable product, right? I mean, people are actually 
eating their products. I've never had any of the Beyond Meat uh, hamburger patties or sausages myself, but I understand that they're not that bad, that they're almost as good as actual meat. Uh, so it's, you know, a real product. I'm sure the company is going to make money. Will they ever make enough money to justify this valuation? I don't think it matters at this point because the stock is uh, moving higher. And I don't even think people are worried about, hey, if this does catch on, I mean, are there any barriers to entry? I mean, what stops other companies from coming up with their own plant-based meat substitutes? Probably nothing. Uh, but right now, I think you got a real short squeeze going on there. I think it's very painful. Uh, there are a lot of shorts in this stock. I wonder how many shorts will be left in this stock when the price finally collapses. But apart from a few examples like this, there aren't a lot of companies that are beating earnings. I mean, you're getting plenty of companies that are posting disastrous earnings. Look at the uh, retail uh, retailer at home. They are a home decor company. The stock was down better than 50% yesterday. Lost more than half its market cap in one day, you know, on earnings that missed estimates. You know, stock is now down, what, 80% from its 52-week high. Just another retailer that is getting, you know, chewed up and spit out in this market. I mean, of course, it's a double whammy if you're a retailer in home decor because not only are you suffering because the consumer is broke, but, of course, the housing market is also tanking. And if fewer people are buying new homes, well, they don't have to fix them up. They don't need to redecorate them, so they don't need to shop at, at home. But we didn't have a lot of earnings uh, that came out this week. And certainly that's not why the stock market went up. What about economic data? Was there a lot of positive economic data this week? No, not at all. We had a bunch of negative economic data. In fact, almost all of the economic data that came out this week was negative. I mean, there may have been one or two uh, reports that beat estimates. But most of the reports that came out, some of which I will get into today, were way below estimates. In fact, the economic data was so bad on the week that the New York Fed lowered its GDP forecasts for both Q2 and Q3. They brought their Q2 forecast all the way down to 1.0, and they lowered their Q3 forecast all the way down to 1.0. Three. That, these are significantly lower than where they were prior to this downward revision. But I still think they're being overly optimistic. I bet we get a zero handle uh, on Q2 and maybe even on Q3. But, you know, even if we avoid a recession in calendar year 2019, which is probably a big if, but even if we do avoid a recession and have positive growth, my bet is it's going to be the weakest year for GDP growth since 2009 when the economy was last in recession. So it will be weaker than every single year that Obama was in office with the exception of his first year. So clearly we don't have the greatest economy in the history of America if at best we're going to have the worst GDP growth uh, since 2009. But other uh, economic numbers that came out during the week were weak. Particular, I went over on Wednesday's uh, podcast, the ADP private payrolls number, the weakest job creation in about a decade. It was either nine or 10 years. I forget exactly. But today we followed up with the official Labor Department release of the non-farm payroll number for May. And, you know, even though we got that really, really disappointing number 
in ADP on Wednesday, I don't think anybody was rationing down their expectations at all for the uh, non-farm payroll number that we got this morning. And the estimates was 180,000 jobs. And I think most people were still looking for an upward uh, surprise. People thought, hey, maybe we're going to have more than 180,000 jobs created. After all, we had a huge number last month, right? The government said that we created 263,000 jobs in April. But anyway, we got the number, and the number came out well below even the most pessimistic forecast, just 75,000 jobs created in May. Then adding insult to injury, they reduced down the 263,000 jobs that was originally estimated for April down to 224. Still a strong number, but not as strong. And then they reduced the month before that. I forget the exact number uh, of the revision, but it was a significant number down. And I think if you go back now and you average the last three months of job creation, you get just 150,000 jobs uh, per month, average for the last three months, which is pretty anemic job growth, especially if you're claiming that you're the jobs president and that we have the strongest economy in the history of the country. Uh, Looking at some of the uh, internals, the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%. So officially, right, hardly anybody uh, is unemployed. Unofficially, there are a lot of people that are unemployed. Uh, Manufacturing added a a meager 3,000 jobs. Labor force participation rate, that held steady at 62.8, which is basically exactly where it was uh, when Donald Trump assumed office. I think maybe one tick lower. I think it was 62.9 the month that he was sworn in. So pretty much unchanged, though. Average hourly earnings uh, just up 0.2. There was some optimism that maybe we'd have a 0.3% gain, uh, but just 0.2. So the year-over-year gain in earnings slipped a tick from 3.2 to 3.1, and uh, average work week held steady at 34.4 hours. All in all, a very weak report. In fact, according to the, I guess, the household survey, the number of full-time jobs is now at the lowest since October of 2018. So again, we're creating more of the same type of lousy jobs that we created under Barack Obama. Uh, part-time jobs, service sector jobs. These are not the type of jobs uh, upon which a strong economy is built. In fact, speaking about jobs, President Trump has now been in office for 28 months. And if you add up the number of jobs that were created during those 28 months, the number is 5.4 million. Now to hear Donald Trump talk, this is a magnificent feat. This represents the greatest economy in U.S. history, and he is the jobs president because 5.4 million jobs have been created in the 28 months that he's been president. Except if you compare this to the last 28 months where Obama was president, and of course Obama was president during the worst economy in U.S. history, Well, if you compare how many jobs were created during those 28 months, it was 6.1 million jobs. So in other words, in the strongest economy ever and with the greatest jobs president ever, we have created 12% fewer jobs than we did in the exact same time period under his immediate predecessor who did such a lousy job 
and he has now made America great again by producing 12% fewer jobs than the guy who wrecked America. Now, you know, I know some people say, well, Peter, maybe, you know, why you, sh- you should compare uh, to the first 28 months of the Obama administration. Well, I don't really think so, because that was during uh, the Great Recession. Uh, but I think the, the most relevant time period is the time period immediately before Trump took office, because there you can see uh, the effect. You can look at what the trend was before Trump took office, and you can see how the trend of job growth might have changed after Trump took office. And obviously, the curve bent down. We were creating more jobs before Trump was elected than since he's been elected. Now, I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton would have done an even better job. My only point is that to say that jobs are booming is a lie. It's just one of a number of lies that the president has been telling and which is ultimately going to come back to haunt him as the Democrats are able to hold the president accountable for those lies when it comes to the election in 2020. But the bottom line is, is we got much weaker than expected jobs growth. We got weaker economic data. We have downward revisions to GDP growth uh, from the New York Fed. Yet the U.S. stock market is soaring. Why? What is the reason for this? Did we have a resolution on the trade front? No. Right. We haven't resolved any of the issues with China. We haven't resolved any of the issues with Mexico. The outlook is just as uncertain now as it was a week ago. The tariffs are just as likely to be implemented now as they were then. In fact, maybe more so because more time has gone by without any kind of deal uh, that would uh, forestall them. So what has happened? Well, one thing has happened, and that is the Fed. The Federal Reserve has changed on a dime and has done what I have been saying they would do for years. In fact, I said they would do this from the very beginning. And that is they have completely abandoned any pretense of normalizing interest rates or shrinking their balance sheet. The Fed is about to cut interest rates again. That means the peak of this interest rate cycle was 2.5%. That's it. That's the highest the Fed was able to get interest rates before being forced to slash them. Why is the Fed going to have to cut interest rates to prevent the bubble from deflating, to prevent the bubble economy from returning to recession? In fact, the Fed said it itself. They are trying to extend the business cycle. I said on my last podcast, this business cycle is nothing more than a bubble, and all the Fed is trying to do is keep it from deflating. That is not the Fed's job. The Fed is not there to extend the business cycle. The Fed is not there to try to eliminate recessions. That is not why the Fed was created, and it is not its job, but that is what it is pretending is its function. But the Fed is, again, coming to the rescue. They are not going to shrink the balance sheet. Three and a half trillion is about as, as, as small as that balance sheet got, and now it's about to blow up to a you know, to infinity and beyond as far as where it's going to go in the next recession. But it's only because the Fed is going to give the heroin addicts on Wall Street more of the heroin. That is why the market is going up. That is why the bond market is going up. That is why rates are falling. 
because the bond market thinks the Fed is going to work its magic one more time. It's going to slash interest rates. It's going to force feed cheap money into the economy. It's going to do quantitative easing and it's going to be a party in the bond market. It's going to be a party on Wall Street, except inflation is going to crash that party. A dollar collapse is going to crash that party. It is not going to work again. I've said this many times. The only reason it worked the first time was because everybody believed it was the only time. Everybody believed it was an emergency measure. It was temporary. It was reversible. The Fed had an exit strategy. Well, everything the Fed has been saying for the past 10 years about its exit strategy, about its ability to normalize interest rates, everything they said was a lie. The person who was telling the truth about it was me. I was calling them out from day one. I called out Ben Bernanke in 2009 or 10, I forget which year, when he testified in front of Congress when he said that QE1 was temporary and that they were actually going to sell all the bonds that they were buying, that they weren't monetizing the debt. I said, BS, you're never going to sell those bonds. And I was right. They didn't because they did QE2 and they did QE3. And then, of course, when the Fed first started talking about shrinking its balance sheet, they were actually going to shrink it to back to where it was before uh, the financial crisis, back below a trillion dollars. That's what the Fed initially said. That's what Janet Yellen said she was going to do. I said she was lying. I said there was no way that was ever going to happen. And up, up until December, right, of last year, QE was on autopilot. The Fed was hell-bent on normalizing interest rates and they said they didn't care about the stock market right they were going to keep on raising interest rates no matter what the stock market did and so the stock market promptly tanked and traders called the fed's bluff and of course the fed was bluffing because it caved and as soon as the stock market started falling again when simply taking additional rate hikes off the table wasn't enough to stop the market from going down, they had to save the market again. The Dow was down for six weeks in a row, and that was all the pain the Fed could take, and now they had to come to the rescue. Now, of course, they're trying to claim that, well, you know, we're worried about these tariffs, right? Maybe that's going to affect the global economy, but they weren't worried about these tariffs when the market was rising. It wasn't until the market started falling, right? And they still talk about how good the economy is, how strong the economy is. So if the economy is so good and so strong, but can it withstand some tariffs? Can it withstand a small correction in the stock market? Apparently not, because it doesn't matter what the Fed says. Look at what they're doing. They could talk about how strong the economy is all they want, but the fact that they're about to cut interest rates proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the economy is weak, that any strength is artificial. It's a result of the cheap money, and they need more cheap money to maintain the illusion of economic growth. I mean, ask yourself this question. Where would the stock market be today had the Federal Reserve never backed down from its rate hikes? Had Powell not done the pivot in uh, late December and January, had the Fed continued to raise interest rates the way it said it was, if the Fed was going to continue to do quantitative tightening exactly the way it said, what if the Fed hadn't changed? What if the Fed simply said, well, if the stock market goes down, it goes down. I mean, that's not our job. Our job isn't to prop up the stock market. Bear markets are part of the normal stock market cycle. And we have to normalize interest rates. We said we would do it and we're going to do it. And if we're going to have a bear market in stocks, then so be it, right? What if the Fed 
maintain that stance. Where would the stock market be today? How many thousands of points lower would the Dow Jones be today had the Fed done that? I mean, would we be at 26,000? No, we wouldn't even be at 20,000. Who knows? We might be down at 15,000 by now. Think about how much the Dow was falling, how rapidly it was falling at the end of last year. That would have continued, but for the Fed. And where would interest rates be? Would long-term interest rates be this low? Would the yield on the 10-year be below 2.1%? Not on a chance. If the Fed was still raising interest rates and was hell-bent on normalizing interest rates come hell or high water, interest rates, long-term rates would be significantly higher than they are right now, which means the real estate market, as weak as it is, would be that much weaker, right? The retail sector, as weak as it is, would be that much weaker. Autos, as weak as they are, would be that much weaker. In fact, we'd probably already be in a recession and a bear market if the Fed was continuing to normalize interest rate and shrink its balance sheet, just like it said. But it couldn't do that without causing a recession, which proves that the policy was a complete failure. Because if you can't remove the policy without the economy relapsing into recession, then the economy was a failure. Remember, I kept talking about the fact that the easy thing to do was to, you know, liquor the economy up, right? The easy thing to do was to get every, you know, get hooked on drugs. The hard part or the impossible part was kicking the habit. That's what the Fed can't do. You know, they were trying to take credit for a successful policy before they actually did the hard part, right? Or it's like a a pilot takes off the airplane and he's, you know, while he's still in flight, he's celebrating a successful flight but he hasn't landed yet. And of course, he hasn't told any of the passengers that not only doesn't he know how to land the plane because he didn't take that many lessons, but the plane doesn't even have any landing gear and it's running out of fuel, right? I mean, so just because you got the plane up in the air, you can't take credit for a successful flight until you successfully landed the plane on the ground. Well, that was always something that the Fed could never do. I knew they couldn't do that. That's why from the very beginning, I called quantitative easing a monetary roach motel. Why did I say that? Because I knew the Fed could check in, but they could never check out, right? I said we would have more QEs than Rocky movies when they did QE1. Why did I say that? Because I knew that once the Fed went down this path, there was no turning back. It was impossible to get out of this. I mean, why do you think I described it the way I did, right? People said, well, it's going to be a difficult trick for the Fed to try to do this, to normalize interest rates and and shrink its balance sheet. But everybody was confident in the Fed's dexterity to pull this trick off. And what did I say? I said, no, the trick that they are trying to accomplish is impossible. I said, it's not like they're the magician trying to pull a tablecloth out from under the dishes, right, where the dishes don't fall down, right? That's, That's a difficult trick, but at least it's possible. You can do it if you practice. I said what the Fed needs to do in order to unwind its balance sheet and normalize interest rates is the equivalent of pulling the table out from under the cloth. And then the cloth and the dishes would have to remain levitated in midair, which is an impossible trick. No matter how much you practice, it can't be done. And that's what the Fed was looking at when it came to uh, you know, unwinding their balance sheet and normalizing rates. But the Fed continued to pretend that that's exactly what they were going to do. And the markets continue to believe that that's what they were going to do. And in fact, everybody who believed the Fed was wrong. Everybody who bought the dollar 
over, you know, in 2014 and 15 and 16 and 17, everybody who piled into the dollar because they believed the Fed, they believed the Fed could normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. Everybody who did that trade was wrong. Now, so far, they've made money on that trade on paper, right? And maybe some of them cashed out, but obviously they all didn't cash out or the dollar wouldn't be where it is. But everybody who made that bet was wrong. You know, all the people who have been buying U.S. stocks all of these years because they were convinced that the Fed had created a legitimate economic recovery, that everything was fine, that all the problems had been solved. All those people were wrong. All of the people who have been selling gold or shorting gold, again, because they were convinced that there was never going to be any more inflation, that the Federal Reserve had saved the day and solved the problems, and that they had everything under control, and that the dollar would reign supreme indefinitely because of a normalization of interest rates and, a, and the contraction of the balance sheet. All those people were wrong. Just like the people who are buying bonds today are wrong. People who are buying bonds today are buying bonds because they think the Fed is going to be able to repeat the success it had uh, with QE1 and 0% interest rates when they tried it the last time because they don't understand the reason why it worked before or why it appeared to work and the reason why it's going to fail miserably now. And in fact, the markets still reflect all of the bad decisions that so many investors made over the years. Because the vast majority of people got it wrong, those wrong decisions are responsible for setting prices. Because if all the wrong people do the same thing, then they affect the markets. Remember, there's an old saying that in the short run, markets are a voting machine. They reflect how people vote. Well, just like people typically vote the wrong way in an election, which is why you don't want a democracy because the worst candidate usually wins. People normally vote the wrong way when it comes to the markets because they follow the crowd. It's groupthink and everybody makes the same mistake. So right now, the markets, the stock market, uh, the, the forex markets, the gold market, and in fact now the bond market all reflect the bad decisions, the bad judgment, the ignorance of the masses who have been pressing these trends, who have been buying or selling these assets based on a misunderstanding of the facts, a misunderstanding of economics and, and money and of the U.S. economy. But at some point, right, this voting machine is going to turn into a weighing machine when the weight of the truth shocks everybody, when people are blindsided by what they should have seen, right? Just like everybody was blindsided by the events of 2008, they shouldn't have been. I was prepared. I mean, I had been warning about that stuff for years because I understood the problem and I understood what was coming. Well, the people who were clueless then, including the Fed, which was completely blindsided by that crisis and is equally as oblivious to the crisis coming. I mean, why anybody would expect the Fed to have greater clarity now of vision when it was as blind as a bat before and still has neglected to accept responsibility for its role in laying the foundation for that crisis. Yes, it wants to claim credit for putting out the fire, but it doesn't want to accept responsibility for lighting the fire in the first place. And of course, it doesn't want to accept responsibility for the next fire that's going to erupt because as I've been saying over the years, 
they didn't really put out the fire. They poured gasoline on the fire. And so for a while, it looked like the flames went out. But then, of course, they come back bigger than ever, which is exactly what's going to happen. Except next time, if they try to pour more gasoline on this fire, the inferno is going to be so big that it's going to burn the entire nation to a cinder. There's no way the Fed is going to be able to say with a straight face that when the, this next recession is over, that they're going to normalize rates. That when the next recession is over, they're going to shrink their balance sheet. In fact, I don't even think they're going to try because they've already come out and said that this is now a conventional policy, right? That QE and 0% interest rates, that's just normal monetary policy now. It's not an emergency measure. This is just what the Fed does. And when the markets get their hands around that, when they comprehend that and what that means, the dollar is going to tank. In fact, the dollar had its worst week of the year this week. The dollar index uh, dropped. It closed at 96.56. It was up, I think it closed last week, just below 98, like 97 and three quarters. So the dollar was down across the board, although it's got a long way to fall from here. And believe me, it's going to fall a long way. But look at what uh, John Williams said, uh, I think it was yesterday, about interest rates. Uh, John Williams came out and said that low interest rates are here to stay. So now you have enough Fed official coming out and saying, look, no, low interest rates are here to stay. They're here forever. Now, of course, John Williams is wrong. Low interest rates are not here to stay because low inflation is not here to stay. The only way interest rates can stay low is if inflation stays low, and that's not going to happen. Now, of course, John Williams wants interest rates to stay low. He needs interest rates to stay low. Otherwise, the over-leveraged house of cards economy that John Williams and his buddies at the Fed erected over the years, that whole house of cards comes tumbling down if interest rates don't stay low. So the Fed needs to keep interest rates low, and so it's going to keep on talking them down as best it can. But ultimately, the act of trying to keep interest rates low sets the stage for soaring interest rates. Look, all these countries that have soaring interest rates right, and have economic crises because interest rates are rising, I mean, don't you think they would keep interest rates low if they could? I mean, it, central banks just can't say interest rates are going to stay low because if that was the case every nation would have low interest rates. They don't. A lot of nations are struggling with very high interest rates. And why don't they just lower them? If it's so easy, just lower them because they can't, because the market won't let them because it would destroy their currency. Now, the U.S. government or the Fed has been spared that because of the dollar's role as the reserve currency. They've been able to print a lot of dollars and the demand for dollars is still there. In fact, the more dollars they create, the more demand there is for U.S. financial assets because people just take those dollars and they buy U.S. stocks and they buy U.S. bonds instead of spending the money at the grocery store right, or the gas station. Well, that's not going to happen next time around. Once the world realizes that this is a permanent expansion of the balance sheet, that we are a banana republic without the bananas, and we're going to keep on printing money, and we're going to monetize 2 and $3 trillion or greater annual budget deficits, the party is over. And we've already alienated so many potential foreign buyers. When the Fed did quantitative easing the first time, the Russians were buying, the Chinese were buying, all of Southeast Asia, South America, all the emerging markets, they were buying up dollars. 
They were they were they were helping us out. They were buying treasuries. They're not not only are they not going to do it next time, they are going to be selling their treasuries. They're going to be selling their dollars. The Fed is not going to be the buyer of last resort. The Fed is going to be the buyer of only resort. And so ultimately, interest rates are going to go up on the long end despite the desire and the need of the Fed to keep them down. Of course, reality though hasn't really set in on Wall Street, right? People still don't appreciate the gravity of what is happening because it's still early in this process where the Fed loses all of its credibility, right? And people realize uh, that they've been bluffing the whole time, right? Now that, you know, they're showing their cards. And as this starts to sink in, this is going to have, uh, you know, profound consequences. I don't think the Fed is going to get the market to rally to new highs. I think this rally is going to fail, and I think the stock market is going down to make new lows. And I think when the Fed finally gets around the cutting rates, and by the way, Barclays now, I think they're at a, they think there's going to be a 50 basis point rate cut by July, by next month. And I think the odds of a rate cut uh, in two weeks, right, in June, they've shot up, I mean, I don't know if they're near 40% now. The odds now for cuts by September are probably close to 100% now. It's almost a sure thing that the Fed's going to cut rates. And one of the things we know is the Fed always does what the market thinks, right? I mean, that's what they did on the way up. The Fed only raised interest rates as many times as they did is because the markets were expecting the hikes and going up anyway. And so that's what gave the Fed the courage to raise rates because the market expected the hike and didn't care. Well, now the market is expecting a cut and it will really care if it doesn't get one. Could you imagine what would happen to the markets if they're expecting cuts and they don't get cuts? Right? And the Fed is never going to disappoint the markets. So the Fed is going to deliver exactly what the markets are saying. Remember, I said even on Fox Business that Powell would not have opened the door to a rate cut unless he was prepared to walk through it. In fact, it's so funny. I'm watching Steve Leisman on CNBC. And every time he, he tries to say rate cut, he says rate hike. You know, he just keeps misspeaking and, and talking and saying rate hike, even though he means rate cut, because he's so used to saying rate hike. I mean, the Fed hasn't cut rates in 10 years, right? And rate cuts were the furthest thing from Steve Leesman's mind. So he still can't get his mind wrapped around the fact that he's been so wrong for so long. And the Fed's actually going to cut rates because every time, you know, he wants to say cut, his brain says hike, but they're going to cut. And reality is going to set in as to what this means. And as it sets in, the markets are going to react more violently because a lot of people are going to have to quickly reallocate uh, their investments, their assets, based on changing circumstances, right? You have so many people that are prepared for the wrong outcome, and now they all finally wake up at once and they have to react at the same time. And of course, you know, if you have everybody trying to sell, and nobody buying what everybody's selling because everybody already owns it and they're all selling, well, you get big moves in the markets. In fact, one of the markets that will likely have the biggest moves will be the gold market. The price of gold uh, was up again today for the eighth consecutive day. In fact, gold prices hit the highest price of the year today. The high I saw was $13.48, uh, but we couldn't break out above $13.50 and in fact, we, we closed well off the highs. We closed around 1340, so up about five, five and a half dollars, but eight dollars off the high when gold was up about 13 dollars. And in fact, gold stocks 
were barely positive. I mean, some were positive, some were negative. The GDX was up just two ticks, which is less than one-tenth of one percent. And the GDXJ, which is an index of junior mining companies, was actually down a half a percent, despite the fact that the price of gold was up for the eighth consecutive day and at a new 52-week high. I think the reason that gold stocks did not rise is because everybody who buys gold stocks, or most people anyway, do not expect the price of gold to get above 1350 They think gold has no upside because 1350 has capped every rally for the past six years. So you have this major resistance in the price of gold, and nobody wants to bet that we go through it. And when no one wants to bet that we're going to go through it, chances are we will. Because what has changed? During the last six years, gold couldn't break through 1350 because everybody thought the Fed was going to keep hiking rates. Everybody thought the U.S. economy was strong. Everybody thought the Fed was going to shrink its balance sheet. Well, that's different. Now everybody expects the Fed to cut rates. Nobody expects the Fed to shrink its balance sheet. And the U.S. economy isn't strong. In fact, it's a lot weaker than people think, but people can see that it's weakening. So I think you have a lot of potential momentum here uh, for gold to break through 1350. And if it does, right, Katie, bar the door, because you're going to have massive buying, right? Because everybody who's been selling gold for the last six years because it couldn't get through 1350, they're all going to want to buy. And of course, people are going to rush into gold stocks because right now, they are factoring in a ceiling on the price of gold. Well, when that ceiling becomes the floor and the sky's the limit on the price of gold, then people are going to rush into these stocks. And of course, everybody's going to be rushing in at the same time. I don't know where the sellers are going to come from. Certainly people like me, right, who have been buying gold and gold stocks for all these years because we knew the Fed was lying, because we knew they could never do what they were claiming they could do and what everybody believed that they were going to do. I knew that they weren't going to normalize interest rates and they would eventually have to cut them. I knew they couldn't end quantitative tightening or finish quantitative tightening, that they would have to go back to quantitative easing. I've been waiting for the Fed to do this for years. I'm certainly not going to sell my gold and my gold stocks when I'm finally vindicated. In fact, the wait has been far longer and I've been far more patient than I ever would have imagined. And so has everybody else who has remained in this trade. And they're not going to give up their positions once it's obvious that they're holding a winning hand. I mean, why would you fold your hand once you know you've got the high hand, right? You're going all in. And that's what people are going to do who are in my position. In fact, I'm convinced that this hand would have won a couple of years ago. You know, when I initially said that if the Fed hiked rates, and remember, the, the reason, or one of the reasons I said that the Fed wasn't going to hike rates was because they would have to cut them, right? Because hiking rates would prick the bubble, and then they would have to cut them. And I thought the Fed would lose credibility if they tried and failed to raise rates. And I thought it would be better for the Fed to never try so they can keep pretending that they could do it without actually doing it, proving that they couldn't. But what I didn't understand when I was making that forecast, I did not expect this many years to go by. Remember, the first rate hike was in December of 2015, and they're not going to cut interest rates until about four years later, right? So you're going to have almost four years, right, or a little less than four years, between the original hike of a quarter point and the next cut. I did not think it would take four years. And the reason I think I was wrong is because I didn't know in December of 2015 
that Donald Trump would be elected president. I don't think anybody knew that in December of 2015. I don't even think he had thrown his hat in the ring. I forget. But I don't think anybody was betting that Trump was going to be the next president. And he threw a monkey wrench in in the whole process because he uh, was able to instill enough false confidence and get through a big budget-busting tax cut right? that probably no Democrat could have gotten through, but a Republican was able to do it. And we had this budget-busting tax cut and euphoria that blew more air into a bubble that was already deflated. It was already about to pop before Trump took office, and all of a sudden it got a new lease on life. And so that extended the period, and that enabled the Fed to get many more rate hikes in before it ultimately pricked an even bigger bubble. But now that it is cutting rates, it is going to lose the same credibility that it would have lost had it had to cut rates a couple of years ago, because it still did not get to neutral or normal. It still did not return the balance sheet to anywhere near the level it was at before the crisis. And of course, everything the Fed has been saying will have been proven to be wrong. So all of their credibility is going to blow up exactly the way I said it was. And when people were buying dollars and selling gold, they were buying Fed credibility. That's what uh, was was keeping gold down. People had confidence in the Fed. They had confidence in central banks. And they had confidence that there would be no inflation because gold is first and foremost, when it comes to an asset to own, it is an inflation hedge. And if you don't think there's any inflation to hedge against, well, then people weren't seeing the reason to buy gold. They looked at it as dead money. They'd rather put it in the stock market. They'd rather put it in the bond market. But once what it, the inflation trade is back on, when inflation is back on the table with a vengeance, when it starts to break out well above 2%, remember, initially we had falling prices and then the Fed came around and said, no, 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 we don't want falling prices. We want stable prices. And then stable prices became a 2% ceiling. And then the ceiling became a target. And then the target became a floor. And now the floor is going to be a launching pad for an inflation rocket ship that's going up into the stratosphere. And as people start to appreciate that, they are going to be piling into gold. I think they're also going to be piling out of fool's gold or so-called digital gold. And that would be Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. In fact, Bitcoin again today managed to get back above 8,000 as I am speaking uh, or recording. It's just below. It's uh, 79.60. So right around 8,000. And I think one of the reasons uh, that Bitcoin uh, hasn't sold off is because gold has not broken through uh, the 1350 resistance. And I think the best selling point that Bitcoin has going for it is that gold has been capped for the last six years, that while Bitcoin has had this meteoric rise, the price of gold hasn't gone anywhere in six years. And so therefore, Bitcoin is a better hedge, a better store of value, a better asset to own if you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about big deficits or fiat currencies and gold, because Bitcoin is a better performer. And as long as gold stays below 1350 and continues to trend sideways or you know move down, then it makes it easier for the Bitcoin uh, promoters to make that claim. So the worst thing that can happen uh, from a marketing perspective of Bitcoin would be a breakout in the price of gold. Because once the price of gold really starts to move and it is delivering uh, on its promise of being a hedge against inflation and a weak dollar and uncertainty, things like that, once gold is performing, well, then why settle for Bitcoin, right? Especially since Bitcoin has already moved up so much and gold is just starting to move. I mean, it seems like some people who 
bought Bitcoin because gold wasn't moving. Well, now that gold is moving, well, they'll want to sell their Bitcoin to get back into gold. And of course, it's a lot, you know, it's difficult to sell Bitcoin because you need to have other people who want to buy it. If you have a significant number of people who no longer want to hodl it, they want to buy gold, then the bottom drops out. And right now, it looks like we could be forming a big head and shoulders top of this most recent rally in the price of uh, Bitcoin. And I think the one thing that can cause Bitcoin's prices to crack below the neckline and then plunge uh, and eradicate the entire rally and then some would be a significant breakout in the price of gold, which who knows, maybe it will even happen over this weekend. I mean, maybe the price of gold will gap up on Monday morning. And if that happens, look out. Because if we actually gap above 1350 and then keep trading higher and leave a little gap in the chart and we just don't even fill it, that will be extremely bullish for the price of gold. And then you might even start to see some of these Wall Street firms actually putting buy recommendations on some gold stocks, something that they have yet to do. Now, I have a feeling that gold stocks have to move up quite a bit higher before any major Wall Street firm decides to put a buy recommendation. But the smart money will start front-running those buy recommendations and buying into these stocks, piling into these stocks on a breakout of a six-year uh, trend. Uh, resistance level in the price of gold. And once we break out, the only resistance, I think, is the high from 2011, which is uh, 1900. And remember, that high was set when people were initially rightly concerned about what was going to happen because of quantitative easing. They were right to be concerned. The mistake that people made was in believing that there was nothing to worry about, that the Fed's policy was successful, and because it was successful, it could be reversed. Well, when they can't reverse it, when we're back at zero, when we're back at quantitative easing, that will prove all the, the fears were correct. All the people that were worried about the direction we were going in, they were all right. The people who were wrong were the people who had confidence in the Fed, the people who thought the Fed knew what they were doing and that they had an exit strategy. So when we go back to QE and back to zero, everybody's going to rush back into gold. And I think we're going to go well through 1900 because I don't see what could possibly stop the rise in the price of gold next time. I don't see anything that the Fed could do. I don't see anything that they could say that is going to stop the price from going higher.